our scripture today is from John um, chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Be seated, please. Morning, everybody. Thanks for uh, coming out today to be together and to worship the Lord, to hear his word, and to minister to one another. So we're so glad that you're here. Anybody feel like hearing a really great story this morning? That sound good? Good, because I'm continuing my series called The Story. So I'm glad you're excited about hearing it. Uh, you know, this morning as I was studying and I was thinking about the fact that I've, you know, over the last year and a half given several messages entitled The Story, which really is God's story. It's the Bible story of God and, and his people. Uh, the Lord reminded me of a particular hymn that I don't know that we've sang here before, but I've been used to singing it in other churches uh, entitled, I Love to Tell the Story. You know that one? The chorus goes like this, I love to tell the story, t'will be my theme in glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I never get tired of hearing that story, and I never get tired of telling the story. It's really the only story that's worth knowing and repeating. It is the story of eternity. It's God's story. Uh, you're just lucky that I don't have time to sing all the verses for you right now. But someday I will. It's a great, it's a great one. You should look it up sometime. Well, we are going to continue uh, the story this morning. And just as a quick review... You remember the story begins in creation. So in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, it tells us about God creating the heavens and the earth, creating male and female. And then in chapter 3, it talks about the fall of man, where Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord and partook of the fruit they weren't to eat. And so they fell from grace. It's called the fall. They fell from grace and they fell into sin and to death. And, but even as they are, as God is sort of doling out the consequences to both the man and the woman and Satan and even cursing the ground, God gives them hope. Because in Genesis 3.15, he promises that there's going to be a rescue. There's going to be a rescuer from the seed of the woman who will crush Satan and defeat Satan, sin, and death. And so throughout the rest of the story, through the five books of the law and the major and minor prophets and the, and the writings and all of those things, we see over and over again God promising this rescue. Today, we're at the fulfillment of the rescue because we're in the Gospels. 
the good news of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is where we're at. So that's what we're going to talk about here today is the fulfillment of the rescue. And if I had to sort of summarize um, this whole part of the story, I would go to Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Let me just read that to you. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, and what does that mean, the fullness of time? In other words, God's preordained perfect time in human history. God had picked it out before the foundations of the world, but in the fullness of God's perfect timing. He sent, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, just like it promised, the seed of a woman, born under the law to redeem, to purchase, and to set free those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's how I would summarize the fulfillment of this promised rescue. Well, today, uh, you know, there's so many things you could say about Jesus, right? The rescuer, so many things. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I mean, so what I've decided to do, since Grant has been preaching through Mark, and Mark is sort of a a fast-moving gospel. It talks a lot about the actions. If you notice the number of times when you're reading through the book of Mark that it says immediately, Mark keeps moving on. And so you're seeing sort of the actions, the miracles, where Jesus went and what he did. So what I'd like to do in the next two messages, today and then next month when I preach again, is today talk about the identity of Christ, who he is. And then next month, talk about the words or the teachings of Christ. And so that way, in these two messages and what Pastor Grant is bringing, you'll have a holistic, well, you'll have... A little decent picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished on the cross and and beyond, okay? So today I want to talk about his identity. I want to answer the question, who is Jesus? Pretty important question and very important for you to understand who he is. So where do we start? How do you talk about the identity of Christ in, in one message? Well, let me just start by reading you a few of Jesus' names. All right, now there's many more than what I'm going to share with you, but let me identify him a little bit by the names that Scripture uses of Christ. First of all, he is our advocate. He is the author of eternal salvation. He's the beloved son. He's the Christ of God. He is the creator. He's the everlasting father. He's God. He's the head of the church. He is the great I am. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the King of kings. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of lords. Isaiah says he's a man of sorrows. He is our one and only mediator between God and men. He is our Messiah, Redeemer, our Savior. He's the Son of David, and he is the Word of God. So just a few names to give you to think about the identity of Christ. There is a passage in Matthew 8, a story that you're familiar with. I think Grant has preached through this in Mark, where Jesus and his disciples are on the Sea of Galilee, and they're in the boat. And remember that several of the disciples are fishermen. They know the Sea of Galilee. They know boats. They know the water. But they're out there, and a storm comes upon them. And evidently, it was a storm like perhaps they had never seen before. And the boat starts taking in water, and they're afraid they're going to perish. Well, where's Jesus in all this? He's in the back of the boat, and he's sleeping like a baby. And so when they wake him up, Master, 
don't you care about us? We're going to perish. He says, guys, where's your faith? You have the creator of the universe right here in the boat. I think I can handle this one. So he does. He rebukes the wind and the waves. He says, peace, be still. Uh, one time I saw uh, uh, an artwork of this where Jesus is in the boat and he sort of has his, his hand up over the waters. And you just picture that phrase, peace, be still. Anytime my life's in an uproar, I always like to picture Jesus saying, Gary, peace, be still. I'm in control. I'm sovereign over all things. Well, this is what Matthew 8, 27 says after that event. It says, the men marveled saying, what sort of a man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? What sort of a man is this? When people got to know a little of Jesus, when they heard his words, when they saw the miracles he did, when they saw his character, when they saw his authority, they all wondered, this is not a normal man. What sort of man is this? So the question today is, who is Jesus? So let me pray and we'll dig in. Lord, we know that the things that we know of you, we only know them because you have revealed them to us. You've opened our spiritual eyes to see you, to get a glimpse of you. I ask this morning, Father, that our vision would become more clear. That we would know the basic truths of who you are. That it would confirm our faith. That it would give us confidence and security in our relationship with you and in eternity. And I pray, Lord, that it would make us more bold in our witness for you and who you are. So, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds this morning. Speak to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is Jesus? How would you describe him? What would you say about him? Long list of things could be said, but as I have been preparing this over the last month and just writing down who Jesus is, as I read over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John again and began to take notes, just started compiling a very long list. And then I remembered Pastor Grant and my wife saying, Dad, honey, you've you got to keep your messages within that, you know, 40, 45-minute range. These, you know, two-hour and 30-minute messages are just not going to cut it. And I thought, okay, maybe God's speaking to me in that. So I picked what I consider to be the three most important things to know about Jesus. Does that sound reasonable? Three things? Okay. Let me give them to you. First of all, who is Jesus? Jesus is fully God. That's my first point. Jesus is fully God. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, the angel is speaking to Joseph, and he says this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet, prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the Holy Spirit speaks to Isaiah, who writes down, his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is fully God. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, and by beginning it means eternity past, was the Word. And the Word there just means God's self-expression. In other words, God fully expressed is what John is calling the Word. In the beginning was this full expression of God, and this full expression of God was with God, and the Word was God. Who is that word that's being talked about? If you go down to verse 14, it tells us, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have, be, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Emmanuel, God with us. The word was God, and Jesus was that word. He was the self-expression of the living God. In John chapter 8, uh, the religious leaders say this to Jesus, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? <laughs> Can't you just hear them? <laughs> you ever said that before to somebody? Who do you think you are? I know I've had it said to me many times. <laughs> Whew, still trying to grow up. Who do you think you are? So Jesus said to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and then he says, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. What Jesus basically was saying is, I am the great I am, the eternal, self-existent one who has always been and always will be. In other words, he claimed to be God. The prophet says he's God. The word of God says he's God. Jesus claimed to be God. In the flesh. In Mark chapter 2, there is the story of the paralytic. Remember the guy that couldn't walk, and he has four friends that put him on a pallet, and they can't get in the door to bring him to Jesus so their friend can be healed. So what do they do? They climb up to the roof, make a hole in the roof, which I'm sure created quite a mess, and I'm sure the lady of the house was not very happy. But anyway, they lowered him down in front of Jesus, and uh, Jesus says this in Mark 2, 5 to 7. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Blaspheming means e either speaking evil of God or giving God's glory to someone else. That's blaspheming. So they thought Jesus, being just a man saying your sins are forgiven was like taking God's glory. Of course, he was God. 
He deserved the glory. He had the authority. He had the power. So in order to prove that to them, here's one of those miracles that points to Jesus being the Messiah, being God in the flesh. He healed the man and said, why don't you take up that pallet and just get out of here? And he did. And what do you say to that? Oh, well, I guess if you can heal somebody, which only God probably can do, I guess you can say your sins are forgiven. But in other the, in the words, Jesus illustrates the fact that he is God. And in verse 12 of that passage, the people said, we never saw anything like this. I mean, what would you say? You see this guy being lowered down, all this commotion and mess going on. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders getting all stirred up and worked up about everything. And then Jesus says, oh man, you guys are something. And then he heals the man. He walks out. He's God. And then lastly, I want you to turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 20, the passage uh, that Robin read for us just a few minutes ago. And Grant and I are um, wanting to train you a little bit, so I'll just point out the training now so you know what you're going through. All right, I feel that's fair. We've noticed that because we have most of the verses up on the screen that sometimes there's not a lot of turning in Bibles and devices and things like that. We want you to engage the Word in here. We don't want you just to come in and kind of watch the, the preacher and watch the screen. So every once in a while, we're going to ask you to not look up on the screen, but to actually turn in a real Bible or on a real device. Does that, does that sound good? I mean, just, we just think that would be healthy for all of us to keep engaging in the Word. So in John chapter 20, verses 24, let me begin reading this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. In other words, Jesus has risen from the dead and he has already appeared to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't with them when he appeared. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I got to see it. I got to touch it. I got to feel it. I got to smell it. I got to know by all of my senses, this is really true. So verse uh, 20 or 26 Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said. So I guess Jesus could pick locks or something. He, he, he got in. So uh, he said then to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So Thomas calls him Lord, doubting Thomas because he doubted that the Lord had risen. But Jesus shows up and reveals himself to Thomas and shows him the evidence of his wounds on the cross. And then Thomas had to proclaim, you are Lord and you are God. He saw the resurrected Christ and declared him to be God. That's point number one. Who is Jesus? He's fully God. Point number two, Jesus is fully man. Now, I'm going to begin to hopefully open up your minds a little bit to understand this. 
but I'll confess ahead of time, I don't completely understand it, and you never will either. But let's, let's do our best this morning here, okay? He's fully God, but yet he's fully man. One person, two natures, okay? One person, two natures in one person. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. So it gives a, a history of the generations from Abraham up through the birth of Christ. He was part of history. He's in the genealogy, okay? If you go to Luke's gospel, it takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam as well. Then verse 18 says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The birth of Jesus. In other words, Jesus was born. Just like all the rest of us, he was born from a woman. He spent nine months in the womb, or ten months, or whatever it is exactly. You, you girls know that. Anyway, so Jesus was born. He was fully man. Uh, in Luke 2.52... Uh, at the end of sort of the, his, uh, the account of his birth, all right, as, as he's getting a little bit older, in Luke 2.52, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, Jesus, he grew in his humanity. He grew mentally. He grew spiritually. He grew physically. He grew socially. He grew in every way like all people grow. He was fully man. And sometimes we forget about this. We, we just kind of know Jesus is God. Yeah, fully God, I got that. And yeah, man, yeah, he took on flesh or something like that. But we don't really look at some of the texts. And keep in mind, I'm just using the gospel texts. I mean, we could go all over the rest of the New Testament to support all of these things. But this is just the gospels. Uh, Luke 19, uh, this is the encounter with Zacchaeus, the guy who climbed up in a tree to get a peek of Jesus. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was Jesus' favorite title for himself. I don't know how many times it was used in the Gospels, but, but I know it was used 88 times in the New Testament. He was the Son of God. He was fully God. But the way Jesus liked to refer to himself was the Son of Man. Yes, in Daniel it's used as a messianic title. You know, I'll, I'll grant you that. If you go back in Daniel 7 and look it up, it talks about one like the Son of Man appearing who has a kingdom. And so it is a messianic title. But it also means that he was just man. He had a human body, a human soul. And Jesus, for whatever reason, declared that more than he declared that he was the Son of God. That's how he described himself, the Son of Man. The more I thought about that, the more I started rejoicing over that because I thought, here is God in the flesh who, yes, overwhelms everybody he's with with, you know, his godness, but yet when he's describing himself, when he's trying to identify with each of us, he says, I'm a son of man. 
He represents us and he relates to us. That just touches my heart as I think about that. That here was this lofty, glorious universe creating God who knows everything, who has all power, who's at once in every place. And he wants to identify with me? Whoa. I feel kind of like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where he sees the Lord, you know, high and lifted up. And he says, woe is me. That's kind of how it made me feel. Luke 22, he's talking to the religious leaders again. They're talking to him. They said, if you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, here it comes again. The Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. I love the way Jesus plays around with these religious leaders. He's just he's he's trying to humble them. They're just so prideful, so full of themselves self-exalting all the time, thinking they're better than everybody else. So Jesus said in that one passage, I'm the Son of Man, and I'm the Son of God. I'm both. I'm two natures in one person. And then lastly, in Luke 23, this is Jesus hanging on the cross, and he calls out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus died. Jesus is fully man. He was born. He grew. He got tired. He got thirsty. And he died. He was fully man. Fully God, fully man. Let your mind try to get a hold of that. Let's stretch it just a little bit here today. Let me share some thoughts about this whole concept. If you want a fancy term and want to impress somebody, you can use the term hypostatic union. Both, probably got that in seminary, right? Hypostatic union, yeah. Two natures in in one person, all right? Uh, Dr. Gleason Archer, and Dr. Archer was at the seminary that I went to, but he had sort of finished his teaching career. He was just kind of speaking once in a while, but I got to know him on a couple of occasions. But here's what he said about why the Messiah had to have two natures. See, this is why Jesus is the only Savior, the only person who could accomplish what he accomplished. Why? Because he was the only person who's ever been fully God and fully man. Listen to his thoughts. God as God could not forgive us for our sins unless our sins were fully paid for. He's a just God. There has to be punishment for sin. So he couldn't forgive us unless there was a payment for our sins, all right? Otherwise, he would have been the condoner and protector of the violation of his own holy law. God cannot allow his holy law to be broken without some type of a consequence, without some type of a payment for that sin. 
Now, it was only as a man that God in Christ could furnish satisfaction sufficient to atone for the sins of mankind. All right, hang in there. For only a man, a true human being, could properly, could pro- properly represent the human race. A lamb might suffice for a temporary sacrifice and forgiveness, as it did throughout the Old Testament times. But to have an ongoing, once-for-all sacrifice so that everybody's sins in the whole world could be forgiven, the only way that could happen is for Christ to be fully man as a full representative of the human race. And this is why he's called the second Adam. First Adam disobeyed God. The second Adam lived a perfect, sinless life and became the blameless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he had to be man. But our Redeemer had to be God also. For only God could furnish a sacrifice of infinite value to compensate for the penalty of eternal hell that our sin demands according to the righteous claims of a divine justice. Only God could have devised a way of salvation that made it possible for him to be just and at the same time become the justifier of the ungodly. Instead of sending them to the everlasting judgment they deserved. Now listen to this last line. For it was the perfect man who was also infinite God that furnished an effectual sacrifice for all believers of every age. Perfect man who was also infinite God. So you see, there's a reason why these, these um, things I'm sharing about the identity of Christ are so critical to your faith, to your security, to your assurance, to your confidence. And to never, ever think that perhaps there might be a better way. No, no, no. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Why? Because it took someone who was fully God and fully man to bring holy God and sinful man into a reconciled relationship. It was the only way. <laughs> I mean, that's part of that, you know, the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. Now, let me read something from Dr. Wayne Grudem. And I did have Dr. Grudem at the seminary I went to, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which it took me almost half a year to be able to even say the the title of the the seminary. So I just abbreviated, they call it TEDS. Or you just say, I went to Trinity. Which one? Oh, you know. So anyway, uh, he's going to talk about how there's some things that one nature of Christ can do that the other nature can't, and that the other nature could do that the other one can't. All right, you'll understand when, I'm, when I read this. It says, when we're talking about Jesus' human nature, we can say that he ascended to heaven and is no longer in the world, right? His human nature, his body, it ascended to heaven. It's seated with the Father. But with respect to his divine nature, we can say Jesus is everywhere present, where two or three are gathered. There he is, he is in the midst of them, right? So we can say that both things are true about the person of Christ. He has returned to heaven, and he is also present with us. 
Because you see, what's true about the one nature of Christ is true about the person of Christ. What's true about the other nature of Christ is true about the person of Christ. One person, two natures, brought together perfectly in one person. What's true of this nature is true of the person. What's true of this nature is true of the person of Christ. That's where I think it can get to be confusing to people. All right, here's another example. In a similar way, we can say Jesus was about 30 years old when he began ministry. All right? If we're speaking with respect to his divine nature, we can say that he eternally existed. If we're speaking of the divine nature, he did eternally exist. He was God. He existed from the very beginning of of eternity past. Now, listen to this. He says, those who find the doctrine of the incarnation, and by incarnation just means God taking on flesh. The word became flesh. That's That's incarnation. Speaking of that doctrine... Some people say it's inconceivable um, to find the doctrine of the incarnation. Inconceivable have sometimes asked whether Jesus, here's a good question, when Jesus was a baby in the manger in Bethlehem, was he also upholding the universe? Could Jesus in his human nature be born and be laying there in the manger? Yes, that's what happened. Could Jesus in his divine nature still be upholding the universe as he laid there in the manger in his human nature? Yes. The answer is yes. Uh, and, And what he says after that is really good truth. Jesus was not just potentially God. In other words, it wasn't like God came to earth in the form of Jesus and then potentially there was the the opportunity for him to be God. No, as a baby. In the womb, he was the God of the universe throughout all that time. What is true of one nature is true of the person. What is true of the other nature, true of the person of Christ. So in his human form, he's a baby, but in his divinity, he's still the ruler of the universe holding all things together. Hang with me. Or in someone in whom God unique, or you can't say that he just was potentially God or someone in whom God uniquely worked, but he was truly and fully God with all the attributes of God. As the angel said to the shepherd, he was a savior who is Christ the Lord. He didn't become Christ the Lord. When he was a baby born, he was Christ the Lord. All right? Now, those who reject this as impossible simply have a different definition of what is possible than God has as revealed in Scripture. You see, it's not what you think is possible or impossible. It's what God says is possible or impossible that you need to believe. And this this is a good statement here. To say that we cannot understand this is appropriate humility. But to say that it's not possible seems more like intellectual arrogance. In other words, I know better than God's Word. If you don't understand it, that's fine. I don't. I'm just giving you what I know, but there's so much I don't understand. That's appropriate humility. We only know what the Scriptures tell us, and then it takes a lifetime and beyond to study them and to even know them. But if you think you know better than God of what's possible and impossible, then I would say you've got a little bit of arrogance going on there. So in conclusion, and and this is 
Dr. Grudem's conclusion. This is not my conclusion. I didn't, I didn't want to get your hopes up, okay? <laughs> Should have probably just cut that out. In conclusion, he says, the fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever, Jesus will always be fully God and fully man forever, so that infinite God became one person with infinite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. It's true. It's a miracle. It's mysterious. We don't understand it, but God's word teaches it. And because Jesus is both fully God and fully man, he can be the savior of the world, the only savior of the world, which is my point number three. Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, and point three, Jesus is the Savior, the only Savior of the world. In Luke chapter 2, the angels speaking to the shepherds say, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For you, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the rescuer, the true hero of the story has just been born. And then in John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, after talking with her, she discerns who Jesus is and thinks, wow, could this be the Messiah? So she goes and talks to the town people, and this is what they say. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And then a, a passage that Grant shared last week, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his, his disciples, who do people say that, here it is again, the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah and Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter speaks up through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the anointed one. You're our Savior. You are the Son of the living God. And then when Jesus goes to attend to the family of Lazarus after he has died, he speaks to Martha, John 11. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's a great promise to hang on to, isn't it? And then he says to Martha, hey, Martha, you believe that? She said, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ. You are the Savior, the Son of God who's coming into the world. You are the promised one. And then, if you will, go back to John chapter 20 one more time. Let me hear them by pages flipping. It's hard to hear your phones. That's the thing I really miss. You know, back in the old days when everybody was flipping their Bibles, it was almost like a little air conditioning thing going on, but... Anyway, that's all right. So try to make some type of movement when you're doing it on your phone, if you could. I'd appreciate that. So let me just read, uh, starting with uh, verse 28 that we concluded with a while ago. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. We haven't seen Jesus, but we believe. Verse 30, or verse 30, 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, in other words, the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Who is Jesus? Three most important things, in my opinion, you need to know about him. He's fully God. And when I say fully, I mean he's fully. He's God. And he was fully man. He, he was true man. He had a body. He had a human soul. Fully God, fully man in one person. And then he's the, thus he qualifies to be the Savior of the world. So why is, it, why is it important to know those things? Why is, it, it is import, why is it important to know the truth of Jesus' identity? Well, because first of all, John 8 tells us the truth shall make you free. It'll make you free of Satan, sin, and death. It'll set you free uh, from a life without God. It has set you free to become in Christ all that you need to be because you know the truth, and the truth can set you free. It can also make you more like Jesus because in John 17, when he's praying that, that high priestly prayer and he prays for us, he says, Lord, sanctify them in truth. In other words, make them more like me. Set them apart in a greater way through truth. What is truth? Your word is truth is what it goes on to say sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. As we know the truth of Jesus' identity, it helps us to become more like him, more conformed to the image of God, transformed. And then thirdly, it enables us to properly worship. And let me just share these verses as I conclude from John chapter 4, starting in verse 22. He's speaking to the woman at the well, and he says, You worship, in other words, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. To truly worship God, you have to know truth. And I would say, to truly worship God, you have to know the truth of who Jesus is. Because he is God. And you need to know the truth about him to worship him. And the more truth you know about Jesus, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll want to serve him. And the more you'll want to follow him and the more you'll want to share for him. And you'll be willing to die for, to yourself every day just to, to give him that glory and to prove your love for him. Let me just close with these comments from C.S. Lewis. Both a scholar and an author wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and a lot of other writings. Uh, sometimes you've got to read his stuff a, a two or three times to get it all. He's, he's pretty deep, but... Here's what he says regarding the person of Christ. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher.
he would either be a lunatic or else the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. And then he adds, you can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and worship him as Lord and God.